2 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 13 through 18. And this will conclude our look at the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And I always have a little bit of a mixed emotion when I end a book, a series like this, because as I know it's still in the Bible and I can still go read it, I do have a sense of a little bit of loss because you've been spending so much time with a book like this and reading different commentaries and looking at how different people outlined it and sermons and things like that. So uh, we are concluding this study this morning, Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Verses 13 through 18, and I hope it's been beneficial uh, to you. I know it certainly has um, to me. These last few verses of 2 Thessalonians 3 are typical in some ways of how Paul would end a letter with some general exhortations. And you might remember last week we looked at some very specific exhortations, and those specific exhortations were to the people who were causing problems, the people who were not busy with work, but they were busy bodies, and they were just causing problems. And Paul even goes so far as to make this incredibly bold statement in verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul says you can't just have hangers on. Don't enable people to be lazy. Now, of course, as we noted last week, it's if anyone is not willing to work, of course, there might be a season or time or reason that you are providentially hindered from working and pulling your own weight and load, and that's certainly okay, and you might have a season where you need to live off the generosity of others, and that's certainly fine and acceptable, but Paul's point is not that person in those verses. Paul's point is those who just don't want to do anything. They just don't want to carry their own load, and so he has some very strong words for them. So he continues on this morning in, in this text in sort of the same vein. It's, that's the background context, but he begins to give some really general exhortations, and we'll find those here today. We'll have two big points as we walk through this. Doing good and living well, which is just the title of the sermon, really. Doing good and living well, and we'll have three words that I'll give you under each one of those, and we'll unfold that as we move along. Doing good. A uh, friend of mine, his pastor as well, he was telling me a story not long ago where he was talking to, um, a, he was talking to a salesperson and sort of struck up a conversation and a friendship really with this person that was selling him something or trying to sell him something at least. And it turned into a counseling session, a weekend counseling session over the course of the weekend. And he's just like, oh my goodness, this just, and, and so he was telling me about this through a text conversation and I texted him back this verse in verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. It's like the Lord's brought you a good to do, go do it. And he said, yeah, 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 I'm going to do it. Leave me alone. And I, and I knew he would, and it was good-natured exchange. Don't grow weary in doing good. There's so much application of this, isn't there? It's not really a mystery as to what Paul is saying here. Keep doing the right thing. When you know the right thing to do, keep doing it again and again and again. But if we're honest, sometimes we don't really want to do the right thing anymore. Anybody ever felt that way? Anybody felt this way this week? This morning? Last, last hour? <laughs> I just don't, I'm tired of doing the right thing. I don't want to do the right thing anymore. I don't want to respond rightly to somebody who's harsh and critical with me all the time. I don't want to be responsible with my resources. I just don't want to, I don't want to do it anymore. I'm tired of it. Parenting gives you all kinds of opportunities to practice this, doesn't it? Never tire of doing what is right. Many of you had plenty of opportunities to practice that this morning, getting ready. 
I was joking with some friends earlier that it's really the devil gets up extra early on Sunday mornings, doesn't he? It's hard to get out of the house. Spending time with the Lord, spending time in prayer, keeping your thoughts and heart pure, watching where your eyes go and don't go, what you watch, what you listen to, serving your family, working for the glory of God, working hard for the glory of God, as we talked about a little bit last week. I think some of us just wish we could have a day where nothing counted. So like Mother's Day and calories. It doesn't count today, so you guys just do your thing. You kind of want a day where it just doesn't matter and doesn't count. And I think many people almost want a day off from just being a Christian. Just, can I just have a day where I just do whatever I want to do? Sort of the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story. Some of you have read that, I'm sure. Some of you were assigned that in school, I'm sure, as well. You know the basis of the story. Dr. Jekyll is this revered medical doctor, man of society. Everybody likes Dr. Jekyll, and he's very upright, upstanding, serving on various communities, community initiatives, volunteering, brilliant, got it all together. But inside, Dr. Jekyll has this part of him that wants to do bad, evil, sinister things. And so what Dr. Jekyll does is he comes up with this potion that can transform his figure into something that's not recognizable as himself, Dr. Jekyll. And this sort of alter ego is called Mr. Hyde. And so he takes this potion and Dr. Jekyll then transforms into Mr. Hyde. And Mr. Hyde goes about terrorizing and doing terrible, sinister, horrible things. And so the story is about this. And it's really a story about the nature of good and evil and the reality that there's something inside all of our hearts that wants expression for evil. Eventually, the situation unravels when Dr. Jekyll loses control of when he transforms into Mr. Hyde. And the moral of the story, Robert Louis Stevenson's story, is that this evil, if you give it full vent, if you give it full desire, it will kill you. You give it an inch, it will take a mile. This is how it works. And so Paul here, in this text, he's encouraging us to persevere in doing good. Let me read our text for us. 2 Thessalonians 3, 13 through 18. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness. In every letter of mine, this is the way that I write. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Doing good, persevering. You can do it. You can persevere. The Lord will give you strength. The Lord will give you strength to offer that kind word yet again, to drag yourself to corporate worship when maybe you don't feel like it, to serve your kids, your family, to say no to temptation. Don't tire of doing what is right and good. Lean into the Lord's strength. He will give it to you. Perseverance. The second point is very much related, but I want to, uh, they overlap, but there's a little bit of nuance going on here that I want to talk about. Uh, So perseverance and then obedience. Notice what he says in verse 14. If anyone does not obey 
what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. All right? So if they don't obey, the point of the letter, of course, was to bring obedience, to bring conformity specifically to the will of God, as Paul has said in multiple other places. Now, he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, so it really raises the question, what's in the letter? And we've, if you've been with us a little while, we've taken a little bit of time and we've looked at really every verse, every word of this letter. So let me just remind us of a couple of things that are in this letter that they were supposed to obey. In chapter one, we saw that the Thessalonican, and you'll remember as well, the Thessalonican letters are very positive, especially First Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians is largely positive as well. In chapter one, they have this growing faith and despite the difficulty and persecution that they're going through, and they're commanded and commended for their walk, and then they're said to walk worthy, walk worthy in the manner of which you are called. People shouldn't be shocked when they meet you and you identify yourself as a Christian. Maybe they've known you for a week or two or a month or maybe a year, and then they find out that person's a believer in Jesus. Wow, didn't see that coming. It shouldn't be that way. We should be consistent, walk worthy. And so somebody finds out, yeah, yeah, that person is a part of a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. And they would say, well, that's consistent with who I know this person to be. So walk worthy. Chapter 2 is full of admonitions and warnings about those who oppose God. Warn about the wicked people and specifically this figure, the Antichrist, as it's identified here in chapter two, the man of lawlessness. Don't align yourself with him. Don't believe the false promises of the lawless one, but walk in a way that's honoring to the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the reality that not all have faith. Not all are going to believe this message. There were unbelievers in Jesus's ministry, unbelievers who heard Paul preach. Not all are gonna believe And it's just a sad reality of the coldness of the people to the things of God. You, though, be consistent. You keep believing this message. And then last week, we looked, as I mentioned a moment ago, at this idea of work and rest, uh, to work hard so as to not be a burden. Dealing with those people who are disruptive, don't tire of not being those people, and then don't tire of dealing with those people in a gracious and loving way, but firm when we need to. And that leads us into this next point. So doing good, we're going to persevere in our faith, persevere in doing what is right all the time, obedience to the word of God, and then next, practicing biblical love. I use this term biblical love really to distance this idea from maybe the concept of just a cultural love. Um, we, we use the word love in so many different ways and senses, and that's part of the part of the problem with the word love in our world, right? Because uh, we can say, I love ice cream. I love my kids. I love sports. I love beautiful weather. It, we, you can say you love all sorts of things. And they're not all on the same level. Um, and that's part of the issue. When I say biblical love, we're not talking about, we're talking about not just an emotion, but we're talking about a firm commitment, a commitment to another person. So practicing biblical love So what does Paul tell them to do if somebody doesn't listen? We saw this earlier as well. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, you take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. You're actually supposed to take action. 
you're supposed to distance yourself from that person. This may seem harsh, may seem cruel, depending on the upbringing and how this is done. I love this quote from Sam Albury. He said this, Unconditional acceptance and unconditional love are not the same thing. To demand the former is to exclude the latter. All right, so think through that for a second. Put your thinking caps on. Unconditional acceptance, just saying I'm going to accept somebody and accept their sin no matter what it is. Whatever they want to do, that's fine. Now, you can, of course, accept the person as a person, but you don't have to accept their behavior, the sin, and unconditional love. They're not the same thing. If you demand the former, you exclude the latter. Just saying you're going to love someone no matter what. You're never going to confront them. You're never going to have a harsh word. You're never going to uh, deal with anything. Well, if you demand unconditional acceptance of behavior and sin, well, then you can't really love that person. Because sometimes the most loving thing that you can do as a Christian is help someone out of their sin. That's what we're called to do. And that's what Paul is calling them to do. You take note of that person and have nothing to do with them. This idea, take note of them. You write their name down. I remember in church when I was a wee little lad, the, we had this upstairs building and we were in Sunday school class and there was this very, very, very sweet older gentleman who taught our class and it, the class was just not very respectful. I can just admit that to you now. Class of, I was probably third or fourth grade um, at the time. And I remember that he would always take out this little note card. He would try to get our attention. And then he would write our names down, like the ones that were acting up and misbehaving. He'd, he would take our names. Well, come to find out, nothing ever happened with any of that. It was just a, I'm going to take a name down. Like, and that was supposed to curb the behavior, but it really didn't work. So uh, taking names, just writing somebody's name down doesn't do anything. Paul isn't encouraging that. He says, you're, you're going to take note of that person and you're actually going to do something. There has to be recourse with this one who won't obey the word of God. Now, let's make sure that we're on the same page here. We're not just talking about somebody who may understand a portion of scripture a little bit differently than you, a difference of interpretation. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who look at the word of God and just say, that's not for me. I'm not going to obey it. And yet they try to embed themselves in the Christian community. He says, that can't work. If you're living in blatant, unrepentant, rebellious sin against the Lord, you have to distance from that person. We talked last week about this idea of what's called church discipline. I really like the term church restoration, bringing someone along and you apply the amount of force that's necessary in order to bring and correct behavior. It also says, uh, nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. There were different punishments even in the first century. And some of these communities, it seems like from some other studies and things people have done, there was sort of a legalistic idea, sort of a punitive idea. If you do this crime, you get this long. My son's playing lacrosse now, which was a new game to me, understanding the rules work a lot like hockey. Many of you are familiar with that. And the, in hockey, you have a penalty box. So if you, you know, whack somebody with a stick or high sticking um, in lacrosse, it's slashing. If you hit somebody in the head, push them in the back. And you can't do that. And so you get pulled out of the game and you get put in the penalty box. And I think some people see the Christian walk in life in that way. It's like, well, you did something wrong. Let's just stick you in the penalty box for a little while. 
It's like, well, that's punitive. That's you did something and so you get something bad happen to you. That's not the point. The point is remedial. The point is to bring about change. And so I've been asked before, how long do you, how long do you punish someone for a particular sin? That's not even the question. That I don't, that's not enough information to answer the question. The question is, are they repentant? Are they repentant of that particular sin? And if they are, you welcome them back in to the fellowship and you help them to get better. In the early church, apparently there were some communities where you had this sort of punitive, do the crime, get the time kind of um, idea. One resource said this. I just found this really fascinating and kind of funny. One is reminded that religious communities usually have grades of punishment. A minor offense, such as interrupting another member while he is speaking, incurred a penalty of 10 days. I read that, and I immediately started a draft to amend our bylaws. So <laughs> this, this next meeting in the fall is going to be pretty exciting. I got an amendment coming for you. Interrupting another member, you get put out for 10 days. See, that's, that's penalty box stuff, though. That's, that's, not, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not saying, you know, they, they were living in this particular way, and so you just kind of slap a punishment on them. No, you're shepherding them. You're bringing them along. You're applying the force that's necessary and only the amount of force that's necessary in order to curb the behavior, in order to bring them to repentance. That's the goal. That's the goal of this. This is mentioned quite a few times, actually, in the New Testament. I mentioned a few of those texts as we talked about this in previous sermons but I want to bring out one more that I did not mention last time, and that's 1 Timothy 5 and verse 20. It says this, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. You see, there, there is an idea, and I think we're kind of allergic to this idea of shame. You don't want to bring shame on somebody. You don't want to embarrass somebody. Like, well, you don't do that initially. All right, that's not step one. But when, when they persist, when they lock in and say, I love my sin and I'm going to stay in my sin, we, you, we have to start bringing more coercive force for the good of the church, for the health of the church, for the purity of the community. This is how it's supposed to work. So doing good. We need to persist in this. Loving, even public confrontation is not designed to crush anyone. It makes us stronger, makes us more Christ-like, and it's designed for the purity of the community. It's very clear. It's right here in the Bible. Verse 15, you don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Let's keep our categories clear. They're not your enemy. They're a brother or a sister who's walking in error. And so on both sides of this, if you're in that category this morning where you're pushing back against the things of God, you need to be open to hear and to receive perhaps the rebuke, maybe subtle. Hopefully it's subtle at first. Hopefully it's gentle at first. You need to be willing to hear that though. And don't shut yourself off to that. It could be God's tool to help you walk in obedience to him. So doing good, persevering, obeying, and then practicing what we call biblical love. Biblical love, which means sometimes Perhaps you need to say something that's difficult for you to say and difficult for somebody to hear, but it's brought about with the intention of bringing them into obedience to the Lord. Let's move to this last section. These last few verses are, again, not terribly difficult to understand. They're pretty clear what's going on. It's sort of a customary 
conclusion. Verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Well, that's a pretty bold claim, pretty bold promise, isn't it? The Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. All times in every way seems fairly inclusive to have peace no matter what. He's talking about a peace, a subjective peace that we get to experience because of the peace that we have with God. Peace with God, we're reconciled, we're righteous. As we've sung about this morning, we're accepted before the Father and it gives us a sense of subjective peace. We can be, we're okay no matter the turmoil and the chaos around us in the world because we know that we are at peace with God. He is the Lord of peace and he gives you peace in every way, in every situation. Probably my favorite example of this, it comes from the book of Habakkuk. Some of you may be familiar with the book of Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk, the book is really a prolonged conversation between the prophet and God. And the Lord is telling the prophet, Habakkuk, the book begins with Habakkuk praying, Lord, look at all the injustice, look at all the violence, look at all the terrible humans that are running our country. This place is a mess. What are you gonna do about that? God says, I hear your prayer. I'm gonna do something. You're not gonna believe it, but here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna raise up the Chaldeans, your enemies. They're gonna come in and they're gonna raise the city. They're gonna destroy you. You're gonna be conquered. This is exactly what happened when the southern kingdom falls. The Chaldeans come in. And so there's this conversation between the prophet and God going back and forth and back and forth. And we get a few profound statements of trust there in Habakkuk. Of the just are going to live by faith. Even though I don't understand exactly what the Lord has got planned for us, the just are going to live by faith. I'm going to live by faith. He concludes the letter with this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor there be fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Complete devastation, no food, no flock, the vines are not producing. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. And then he gives this imagery. He makes my feet like the deer's, or some of your translations may say like the hind's feet. He makes me tread on my high places. The image is that of a deer, or maybe more accurate for their context and situation over there, something like a mountain goat, um, an ibex, uh, some sort of a wild goat. You guys seen some of these images and pictures of those things wandering around the cliffs over there? I got one for you here. It's pretty wild. This is from planet earth so he's on the side of this cliff it gets better we'll just watch a little bit of this together this thing is just meandering around like not a care in the world and some of you are having heart palpitations just watching that thing walk around on that cliff and they chose to go up there that's where they live some of y'all are like not me buddy no guardrail not going and i understand that that's the imagery though in a mountainous region like this, and they're watching these animals just kind of skip along. There's danger all around them. And it's like you, you kind of want to grab the ibex or the mountain goat and just warn them like, hey, steep ledge, watch out. You really shouldn't take your kids up there. Uh, this is kind of dangerous. 
but they don't even have a care in the world. And Habakkuk says, this is what it's like to have faith in God with an invading army coming in. I'm going to be like that critter that's just walking on the ledge, seemingly completely unaffected. It's not that you're, it's not that you're uh, distant from what's going on. It's not that you don't feel pain or hurt. It's that your trust in the Lord is so profound and deep that even though you can feel the sense of loss and pain and anguish even and hurt, your trust is in something so much bigger and so much greater. So this is the God of peace. Paul wants the God of peace to give his peace to the people. And the Lord be with you all. The way that God gives is with his people is with his peace, through his peace that he gives. Verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. Okay, so something just really practical here. Paul, he probably used what was called an amanuensis, a secretary. He would probably dictate most of his letters. As many of you, depending on the job that you're in, perhaps you do that um, as well. You dictate and someone else types out your letters. Or maybe you write it and someone else types it out because they can't read your handwriting. I've been in situations like that. And you, the, but at the end, Paul would say, all right, hand it over. And then he would write a final little greeting, a signature like many of us do today um, in business, uh, business situations. And we've had trials and all kinds of important things that hinge on the authenticity of a particular signature on a document. And you'll bring in experts and handwriting experts. Uh, is this a forged signature? Depending on the situation. It's interesting that the whole situation is kind of changing now with digital signatures, isn't it? Um, it's, it's really getting, our signatures are getting kind of bad. Uh, maybe Paul had some sort of an elaborate, you know, a more elaborate kind of signature. Some of you probably come from cultures where you have uh, maybe a pretty elaborate thing and somebody sees the end of that letter and goes, oh yeah, well I know who wrote that because they have a very specific signature. One of the most famous in our history at least is John Hancock, uh, the John Hancock signature. Um, and sadly, We've kind of moved from that to everything being scratched out on like iPads and screens now. It's more like this. It's kind of what signatures look like um, today. But maybe Paul had a signature of some sort. And you'll remember that one of the issues is that there were some forgeries around. There were some forged letters that were floating around. And they purported to be from Paul, trying to borrow the authority of the apostles and give some sort of teaching that wasn't biblical. And so Paul is writing and saying, hey, if it doesn't look like this, my signature, don't trust it. Don't trust it. And the point here for us is that whatever the word of God says, we will do it. We will trust it. That was the important piece. We need, we need to know this is from the apostle because if it's from the apostle, it's a word from God and we're going to do it. Whatever the word says, we're going to do it. Then lastly, grace as we live our lives in trust and obedience to the Lord, we get to experience the peace that he gives us despite incredibly difficult circumstances. As we embed ourselves and into the truth and as we put the truth into our hearts and mind, the Lord gives us his grace. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We conclude with some, our service every week with something very similar to this. Paul concluded many of his letters 
most of my emails, my email signature, as many of you have gotten updates from me over the years, I always conclude with grace and peace, borrowing from the Apostle Paul. Grace and peace. God's grace is available to us as well. Well, the first step in understanding and knowing this type of peace and grace is to come to the end of yourself and admit that Jesus is the Savior, the gospel is true, the resurrection really happened, and that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That's step number one. If that's never happened in your life, we would love to be able to have a conversation with you, talk to you about where you stand with Christ, what all of this means, what it means to follow Jesus. We would love to have that conversation. Grace to you. He's not in the business of giving grace and warm fuzzies to people who don't love him or love his commandments and his word. That's not what the Spirit of God is up to. The Spirit of God is convicting the world of sin and unrighteousness and showing the world its desperate need for Christ. And so in here, perhaps, there are some who need Christ in that way, who need him to be the Lord of their life. We would love to talk to you after this is over. Lord, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We sing about it. We're able to relish and remember and enjoy your grace today. And just like this ibex that we see walking on the mountain, on the side of the mountain and seemingly somewhat blind to the dangers around them, Lord, we too want to have that kind of faith and understand that kind of security in you. It certainly doesn't mean that we don't feel the pressures and temptations. It certainly doesn't mean that. And we read so many of the Psalms where David and the other psalmists are just in anguish with the situation that they find themselves in. And so, Lord, we don't gloss over any of that, but we also want to have that type of resolute peace and trust in you. So, Father, no matter where we go, no matter what we do this next week, we pray that we would be able to enjoy the grace and the peace of Christ in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.